Welcome to Open Deeply Season 3, as we burn down shame and reclaim our power. The truths society pushes into the shadows are the very things that connect us. Truths around sexual authenticity, the wisdom of plant medicine, the pursuit of equity, and beyond. To open deeply, as Jack Kornfield says, takes tremendous courage, a warrior spirit. This unconventional path takes just that. So join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Hello and welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron, clinical sexologist and sex educator, and my co-host is sex-positive psychotherapist, Kate Lurie. This week, our guest is Midori. She's a trailblazing educator, artist, and irritant to banality. Midori teaches, coaches, and consults on alternative sexuality, BDSM, Shibari cultural competency, and joyful empowerment through thoughtful kink. Along with founding Femme Women's Intensive in 2004 and Rope Dojo in 2002, Midori is known for having penned the first English instruction book on shibari called The Seductive Art of Japanese Rope Bondage in 2001, and that paved the way for the popularity of rope that we see today. She also works closely coaching individuals as well as therapists and other helping professionals as the co-director of kink-informed certification for the Sexual Health Alliance. Now, before we get to our conversation with Midori, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice. They also don't create a client-patient relationship. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without clearance from your healthcare provider. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. Now, if you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. Now, here is our amazing conversation with Midori. Enjoy. All right, Midori, thank you for coming and pulling yourself away from Sex Down South. I know you're at the Sex Down South conference. I saw you there last year, and today we have you for an hour of time, and we feel blessed and happy to have you here. And so I just wanted to start out asking about something that is completely amazing that you offer, Fort Femme. So can you tell us about Fort FM, your women's dominance weekend intensive? You also mentioned that a lot of what you do there is undo social disempowerment through BDSM. Can you tell us about that? Sure. And I am so happy to be on the show. Yay. And I am signing in from Atlanta, where the amazing Sex Down South is happening. So about Fort FM, it is a three-day Women's Dominance Weekend Intensive, and it's women and non-binary. 
I started this in 2004. Back then, it didn't have the cool name of Fort FM. Now, what it is today, it's a three-day deep dive into unraveling and undoing some of the bad messages that people have received around kink, as well as their own sense of power and place in the world. So the weekend is very unique. We don't so much focus on the quacky pokey bindy things and the technique of the tools because there's a lot of good resources for that. What's not covered is a deep heart-to-heart and vulnerable conversation and exploration for folks who are women and non-binary that around power and how to engage in power and joy on our terms in order to co-create pleasure. Mm. And the part about co-creating pleasure alone, and that part alone may end up going counter to what some people think dominance is about, or BDSM is about. Some might feel that the kink is about fulfilling the person bottoming in their fantasy. Sometimes people have the stereotype too often that dominance is about this shrieking she-banshee of annoying bitchiness. Mm. And instead, to look at how to tap into our authentic power with the objective of creating joy, co-creating joy. In that alone, for people socialized as women, we are not often allowed to, or socialized to speak and investigate our pleasures, to put our joy in the center of things. Just in that itself is a radical act. So powerful. Yeah. So I have heard so many people say that Forza Femme is absolutely life-changing, and I swear I will make it one day. I will. But I would love to know from you, what are some of the specific life-changing aspects of Forza Femme? And do you have perhaps a transformational story of a student or a journey that you can share with us? Sure. And with permission of my students, and these are anonymized, of course. In terms of your first question, ooh, life-changing. Well, that's going to be subjective because I offer my experience openly. And what lesson or phrasing or word or experience changes a person's life or framing, that I won't know. However... Some things that I do challenge that we are not practiced at is I ask this question, name five symptoms that's concrete, tangible, and observable of your pleasure state. Mm. Ooh. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Can you? Okay, sure. Let's see. Are we talking sexual pleasure or just like I ate a really good candy bar pleasure? Let's talk about sex or kink. Okay, sex or kink. Five tangible aspects. I am tangible, concrete, observable. Observable. Okay. Oh, observe. I don't know. How how do people perceive me? I don't know. Well, I am very much in it and take control because I'm usually a top. So on top of my game, calling the shots. I am. What does that look like? What does that look like? 
I think in order to know what it looks like, you need to know what I look like when I'm not in that state because I am more wishy-washy. I'm not quite as authoritative. And I, those, are, those are all internal interpretations. Oh, you're making this difficult. You're right. This is hard. What do people see? And this is in the Dom role or does it matter? You're just open-ended. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Oh. It's to be able to identify one's physical state that the partner can see, hear, or feel of your pleasure state. And when I say pleasure state, not necessarily orgasm, it might be about great delight. Right. So the things we often list, the internal experiences, like how would I know you're having a good time? You would know when you see it. That's a common answer, except how would I? Or I'll look happy. What's happy? I mean, think of the Mona Lisa. Is she happy or is she bored or is she constipated? We can't tell. So to be able to take a good stab, a good try at the inventory of your tells. So it works in a lot of different ways. If I could, as a partner, say, look, if I'm having a good time, if my eyes are closed, I'm having a good time. If I'm biting my lip, I'm having a good time. If my fists are clenched, I'm having a good time. Or if my fists are clenched, I'm hitting that point where it's not good. Yeah, I think for me, like if I'm more in the subby space and receiving, if it's really amazing, I might be going into full body shakes, you know, and kind of starfish, you know, like back arched arms out, like everything is kind of very open, you know, like an open flower. And yeah, just like big waves of shakes. And I've had people get scared about that. They don't realize what that is like that kind of full body orgasm. So I can understand why it's good to like have this stuff described to your partner so that they know what it is. Mm -hmm. Along with that, many of us have not been socialized or conditioned even in our sexual adulthood to recognize what it is that actually pleases us or feels good. Oftentimes we've internalized the, oh, I should like a twin I'm supposed to like it when somebody's nibbling my nipple, except not, I might, hypothetically, that, well, okay, I'm supposed to like this. I'll convince myself that I like it. I'm really not sure I like it. It's actually kind of irritating, but I'm supposed to like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that happens a lot. Like, I'm supposed to be engaging in dominance, and therefore I'm supposed to stand this way and look this way and be all, like, cold and cool. And why don't I feel good in this scene? Hmm. It seems like it would be harder if a person's in the dominant role. Like, I I think about a time years ago, like, this is back in my 30s, and I actually went and I participated in a foot night if people don't know what that is. It's for foot fetishists, and, you know, women go in and they get paid and foot fetishes can have experiences. It's all pretty much from the knees down. And I needed a little extra money. And so I experienced that. But I remember walking in there and like all the women kind of like had their game face on. Well, you know what I mean? Like most of the women were porcelain skinned doms in black leather or PVC. You couldn't read what was going on within them. 
And if we have our game face on, that's a good term. If we have our game face on, don't we do that in the world every day? When we're walking down the street, when we're in meetings, when we're at work, when we're dealing with difficult relatives, or when we're trying to maintain our control when our child is misbehaving. We put on our game face, and that allows us to do the things we need to, but it's not authentic. It's functional and practical and pragmatic. Yes, but in play, if we continue to wear the game face and the mask, we are taking that one place that we get to be raw and true and denying ourselves that. I'm still thinking about what are my tells if I'm in the dom role. Yeah, because I can think of like receiving like, okay, that's much easier, even like sexual. But yeah, being in the dom role, I'm like, I don't know what I... I'm the one asking the questions. (laughs) (laughs) And this is worth knowing because let's say if I'm submitting or bottoming to you, I want to know that you're having fun. At least I hope you would want me to know you're having fun. And if I'm looking at you and your outward expression or symptoms, if you will, are ambiguous, or I might interpret it as you're not having a good time, then I, it takes me out of my headspace. Yeah, I mean, there's been times where I've experienced things that were akin to clown kink, where you could definitely tell I was having a good time because I had a big grin on my face. The whole thing was silly and ridiculous and fun and playful. But there's other times where maybe I've been in the Dom role where I was concentrating and I might not look like I'm having a good time, but I'm really like just kind of thinking about what I'm going to do next. And I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily, I'm actually having a great time. I'm just focused. So that face, that is the the good focus. And I might want to know that because I don't want to start doubting that you're not having a good time. Conversely, if I know my own tells in my state of pleasure, if I know the symptoms, and let's say I'm playing with a new partner or doing a new thing, and I'm not sure if I like this thing, what's my body telling me? Mm -hmm. Am I making myself like this? Or am I really curling my toes? Oops, I'm curling my toes. Oh, I guess I like this. So knowing your own tells within your body, like tracking your body and making sure your your yes is still a true yes, whether you're a dom or a top throughout the whole scene. Exactly. I think for me, if I'm having a bad time, you'll know it because I'll say something in the top role for sure, Ah. you know? But before we get to the saying part, because by the time emotional or physical discomfort is taken to the language brain, turned into language, and then back out the language capacity, aka mouth. There's a whole lot of process that happened and a whole lot of time that we may have missed an opportunity to course correct. Mm. I think that's hard because like, I don't know, I'm guessing a lot of people are like this because I've been a therapist so long. My Mona Lisa is cultivated. Like I can definitely have that ambiguous face where you don't know what's going on with me for quite some time until I let you know what's going on with me. And this is just almost like default. So that would be a little, that's something to work on for sure. Like to break out of that and to consciously have a tell. Yeah. What if you could, and all of us in all of our various capacity, therapist or anything else, we have our game face and we have our professional faces. That's how as social animals, we we maintain harmony. But if we have that one arena in life 
in which we get to tap into the rawness and that we know that we've stepped in and I can not perform in a way that is expected. Now, you were saying about how if you have a big smile on your face that that conveys good or happy or pleased, but that may be the case for you. But do are other people in the situation of shock, trauma, or uncertainty have inappropriate or incongruous facial expression? Like if they're freeze fawning or just fawning. Right. Yeah. A lot of people are like that. <laughs> I know lots of people that just <laughs> that like face, start oh giggling God. when they are really uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 And they look happy. Yeah. Yeah. People that are just listening to this podcast, they don't know why I just burst out laughing like Midori was doing some very comical facial expressions just then. <laughs> just so you know, and you don't think I'm laughing at trauma. <laughs> <laughs> So we in a room full of the women that come to Fort FM and people that come to Fort FM are smart and formally or informally well read and studied and care about self-development and have relatively good language about everyday communication. They may or may not know kink. That actually doesn't matter. But here we have very self-aware people. And yet I ask the question of, Give me five concrete, tangible, observable symptoms of your pleasure state. Are you able to explain it in a way that the other understands without going into what I call synaptic cognitive leaps? If I have to think several steps to understand what you're likely experiencing, I'm spending more time guessing than actually observing and being with you. Mm. It's a series of interpretations that may be misinterpretations. And it gets laden with judgment, fear, hope, expectations, assumptions, assumptions, assumptions. And so often people will be like, well, you'll know it when you see it. Well, will I? For sure. When I'm doing a rope scene and I'm really interested in something, I can look like this. And you're going to have to describe this. Yeah, kind of like the <laughs> school teacher or like the grandma with the glasses on the nose scrutinizing your every move. <laughs> and what it is, is that that face is my focused, I'm solving the most amazing puzzle, which happens to be you. And I'm so into the moment that I have lost that that facial muscle control of that polite social face. So another example might be, so being able to catalog these, to be able to explain it to the partner, to be able to notice it in oneself. Before we need to use words, help in the ongoing consent process, but also confidence. Am I doing the right thing? Am I, are you happy? Am I happy? So one of my tells on the top side, and I credit my Forte FMs for noticing this because we go around the group and, and part of the thing that I'll ask, and Kate, you did this beautiful job of like showing what your opened starfish flower open, the listeners wouldn't have seen the, the body gesture. And as you were showing it to me while talking, it, you're pantomiming it as you're remembering your state of pleasure. I'm now getting a visual 
confirmation. Now, sometimes if somebody says, well, I tense my body this way when it's good for me, I'll be like, can I feel that part and could you do it? And they'll say, oh, well, it's not for reals. It's just, okay, so just give the, the best guess on, and let me feel it. So now I'm having a tactile mm-hmm. understanding of your body state. Now, having asked this question, what happens subconsciously is the person's individual's happy place tells get just a little more exaggerated. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is also stating that I am not going to be able to read your mind. I do need to know these things. So it puts the responsibilities both ways. And also, if I'm on the top side, that it informs the person bottoming that you need to pay attention to my happy and not happy. Oh, so one of my tells turns out that I get a side eye. (laughs) When you're happy? When I'm in a sneaky, happy top Mm. space. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. This is the story I'm making up in my head, and I don't know if it's true, but I would imagine at Fort Femme, even though some of these, you know, a lot of these women are highly educated and they want to explore their power, that a lot of them in their backstory have been conditioned by society to please and to ignore their pleasure. And after a whole weekend of this, I'm guessing a lot of them are walking with their shoulders back a little bit higher, just transformed in certain ways, just like little shifts. And I imagine some of this stuff breaks down quickly because a lot of it is the scaffolding of, dare I say, patriarchy or what have you that told them that this is how they're supposed to behave. And when you just give them permission to act in a more authentic way that is more empowered, I would imagine that stuff breaks down pretty easily and that they leave very different. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the same question that I would ask of them, I want them to ask not only of themselves, but their partners. Hey, sweetie, this is a thing I learned. Tell me, what will I see and hear when it's good for you? And partner's like, oh, come on. You've been with me for years. You'll know it when you see it. Except how do I know that you're clenching your jaw is your happy place or you're just enduring something. Uh. Or I thought the smile that you gave was an okay when it was actually nervous fear response. Mm. Or that my other partner does this thing, say like making a fist when really, really physically delighted intensely. So I'm looking for that fist because that's what I know. People must all do that. And then the other partner turns out that the the fist is I'm reaching critical overload. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 I would imagine, especially people that have any trauma or anything like that. And you kind of indicated this, that a lot of the things that actually are tells that they're not doing okay look like they're having a good time. If anything in their backstory taught them to have a fawn response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I can see why this is also important. And then there's also cultural differences in terms of body language and how we hold our face and how we move. And when when my students learn to ask their partners these questions, 
And they're putting the responsibility directly to the partner that, yes, I need you to communicate clearly. You're asking me to make these assumptions and it's not okay. If we want to play together, the myth is that I'm taking 100% of the power. No, we're bringing both ourselves 100% to the playground. Mm -hmm. So you're not off the hook, partner. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you, We all have injuries in our backstory that perhaps are disempowering. How has being a teacher of BDSM been healing for you? I'm just curious. Ooh, okay. Okay, maybe I'll get to the healing part. But the thing that immediately comes to mind is it's made me patient. It's made me question my own assumptions because so much of my teaching process is What have been my assumptions? What's my mistake? How did I need to learn? Socializes girl in Japan. And the tendency to defer to others for expertise. Mm. So in the teaching of it, I know my stuff. And let me tell you, there are so often the agents of patriarchy that want to tear me down or... Sunny, I'm sure you've also had that as well, where it's like, ah, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's full of herself. So if I stand up and act with confidence, then there's some guy out there who's saying that, well, she's a bitch. And instead of deflating to accommodate, going, well, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. And to just own that. And that's healing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Another thing, actually, in that same line, when I first started teaching, I didn't quite know how to handle what Mr. Well, actually, well, actually, that one who's using the question as an opportunity to elevate themselves and speak bullshit. And the socialization as nice Japanese girl is accommodate and humor and, oh, I'm sure you're right. And now I'm like, no, you're not right. (laughs) Nope, that's wrong. And to stand in front of a room when somebody of social dynamic authority, if you will, somebody with more privilege in terms of the social hierarchy is saying stupid shit. And for me to say, no, you're wrong. And oh my God, they look so shocked. Like they've never had anybody, a girl, tell them that you're wrong. Yeah. I'm sure for some of them that's true. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, you're wrong. And and then move on with the rest of the class. And they're just like, and she's not defending herself. What? Yeah. That's powerful. To be able to do that, it's like, mmm. It is good. So we were talking about the importance of negotiation and all of the conversations, you know, both before you engage in a scene, but also, you know, when, it, when we were talking about the how do you look, I'm thinking of even after like the debrief, because I'm like, I don't know how I look, I want to play and then be like, wow, we're playing observe and we'll talk about it afterwards, you know. So tell me about beyond those basic questions that we see online on the BDSM negotiation sheets, what are some helpful questions or areas to cover for people before they do a scene or even in their debriefs for the next scene. 
Okay. So the first conversation has to happen with the self. That's the first conversation. And what I like to say is check your squirrels and check your gut. What do I mean by that? Squirrels, thought squirrels, the thousand bits of should have done, could have done, the to do. Now, come on. Both of you all have like thought squirrels, right? The things that we could have done, things we're supposed to be doing, the calendars, the deadline, the stuff, the random thoughts that, oh, I should do the dishes. All of that, thought squirrels. Some days, more thought squirrels than others. And thought squirrels, one of the biggest killers of sex life. You have one person with a thousand thought squirrels, another human with a thousand thought squirrels, and you have two humans against 2,000 thought squirrels, and you're trying to get your pleasure on. <laughs> you're trying to get a nut. You missed the pun, <laughs> And them squirrels? Nurr. So I need to check my squirrels. I don't need to be um and all like clear-minded all at once. I just need to take an inventory and see how much of them I can temporarily stun. And if my head is a bit swarming with squirrels, but I want to play, I need to acknowledge that and say, hey, sweetie, I need help. I need help to silence them squirrels. So I need to go take a shower. I need to eat. I need to to wrestle around with you. I need to go and send that one last email that's nagging at me like a giant toxic squirrel. So check the squirrels and check my gut. What do I mean by that? Check my gut. What's my kind of big appetite theme? Not that I want to do bondage and I want to do impact play. No, no, no. That's the toys. It's the I want to feel huge and imperious. I want to feel delicate. I just want a little snack of a scene, or I want to really dive in and and just like really engage in my shadow and my darkness. Or I just want something silly. Life is too fucking serious. I just want something silly. So that's like the check my gut. It's kind of like, what do you want for dinner? What kind of movie do you want to watch? I want a big meal. I want a snack. I want something healthy. I want total junk food. So that equivalent. So the first conversation has to be with me. And this is what will keep, this will help anchor us into our own pleasure without erasing ourselves. So if I don't ask that question of myself, squirrels and gut, and go straight into a negotiation and pre-play conversation, it would be too easy for some of us, so many of us, to center everything upon the other person's stated desire. And never mind that the other person may also be presenting a proposal, if you will, based on what they think we'll like. So it ends up being like the gift of the Magi. So both person trying to do the thing that the other person wants and nobody's happy. Right. So start with kind of a big sense of what's my appetite and okay, can we match that? And it might be that now having started with that, that I want something say calm and sweet, but after talking together, I'm like, Ooh, I actually kind of want a little silly. Mm -hmm. chance to examine so the first conversation with is oneself and 
don't worry about the techniques when you're asking the what's in my gut. Mm -hmm. When I'm teaching Mm -hmm. my rope classes, I will often tell people to don't touch your rope. Leave it and go inside. Reflect. What is it that you are hungry for? Visualize what it is that might happen. It doesn't matter even if it's physically impossible. Don't touch the rope because the moment we touch the rope, most people will go into specific technique and not the humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to dig a little bit on that because I was thinking of something that for some folks, their legit happy place, like what they really want, they're into service, they're into facilitating experiences for other people, making the other person happy and doing what the other person wants is their legit happy place. However, where is that line or how can somebody tell where the line is like, This is, you know, genuine, healthy. This is legit what I want to do versus I'm falling into people-pleasing mode and maybe I don't realize that I'm just telling myself this is what I want. Like, how do you tell the difference? Oof, okay. This will be case by case. And this is where I'm a coach, not a therapist. The questions that I would be asking is, after you do this, after you have this scene, that you're not sure about. Let's reflect back to a recent scene or something that that you're like, I'm not sure. How did you feel coming out of it? Do you feel hollow? Do you feel a little sadness or resentment? Do you feel that self-erasure as opposed to the relief of temporary ego dismantling, which is a different thing? How do you feel afterwards? And if you feel a little bit icky, maybe you leaned into the people-pleasing. This is not to say afterwards if you feel exhausted, spent, like uh, not necessarily verbal and all, whatever it is, your after amazing thing, bodily recovery period is or mental recovery period. I'm not talking about that. Do you feel a little icky? Do you feel like you've betrayed yourself? Yeah, I mean, everything that you're saying in this whole episode makes sense to me. You know, since I'm a therapist that specializes in things like non-monogamy and kink, etc., and I'm also a trauma therapist that does EMDR, etc., I sometimes get the, like, say, the sub who thought they were with a dom, but actually they look back on it and they're like, no, this guy was abusive. And sometimes they don't realize until way after the fact. And a lot of times after many, you know, we have so many conversations as I'm doing EMDR to clear out all the stuff that happens sometimes over the course of years. And a lot of times part of what the quote unquote dom that is trying to break them down and is actually abuser, one of the things the dom does is try to get them up in their head. And just be logical. There's nothing wrong with this situation. You know, not to say that everybody who says just be logical is an abuser, then, you know, a lot of people would get wrongly accused. They do things to get you up in your head so you can't check in with your gut, so you can't check in with your feelings, so that you will say yes to things that aren't a true yes, and so that you won't realize that something is wrong until way down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that not being able to have a dialogue with one's own body. Yeah. 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 Let's see. So 
I'm wondering, what are some commonly held BDSM ideas that you feel are BS or toxic? Oh, my God, my favorite topic. Okay, (laughs) that one's, and I squarely blame some of like the dating sites and FetLifes and all the various kink dating places where you check off the what are you thing, the what are you question. I am a dominant. I am a submissive. I am a top. I am a bottom. Well, are you really? Aren't you more than that? Isn't topping and bottoming dominance and submission something you do? Not all that you are. So this idea that our appetites are identities, does it weave in for many of us, inform our identity? It can. For somebody else, it's game night on a Friday night. For somebody else, it's a way that that they're accessing their philosophy and identity, but it is not their entirety. So to keep it in verb, not noun. So for example, in Fort FM, there's a moment in which I will say, I do not identify as a dominant. And I don't. I don't identify as a dominant. And the class looks kind of shocked. And I'm like, yes, you're learning this class from somebody who does not identify as a dominant. So what do I identify as? And then all these people start saying, "Uh, are you a switch? Are you this? Are you that? I'm like, nope, 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 nope. And somebody will slowly raise their hand and say, you're Midori? Like, bing, bing, bing. You got it. that yeah i'm midori and for all the complexity and vulnerability and appetites that come and go and yeah sometimes i'm feeling my ferocious dominance and sometimes i just want to sit on the couch eat ice cream or curl up in the corner and cry because i had a bad day and if i identified as i am a dominant and i have this image in my head i won't allow myself to curl up in the corner and have a good cry because i had a shitty day Right. So identity that I am a, let it go. I want, I desire, I want to. That's a good one. So instead of saying, I am a dominant, I want to dominate you. I mean, oh my God, that is sexy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Also, that seems more healthy because, again, in my private practice, sometimes when I have a client that it's too just laden in that dom archetype. They never take it off. So they never are learning from the world. They're like, I know all the things I'm dominant. And it's almost always their partner that's submissive that when I have conversations just with a submissive, they're reading all the books and they're learning and like all of these things. And they're like, how do I say this thing to my dom when they have that dom that's like so entrenched and just that archetype of I know all I'm the dominant. It seems like the way you look at things allows you to be more multifaceted and more you. And from a basic leadership standpoint, that I am dominant, I know all is just plain bad leadership. Hell, you know, my time in the the military, that was one of it. The, you know, don't go thinking you know everything, because guess what? Your sergeant may know a lot more. By saying that I want to dominate you or I'm feeling I'm feeling like I want to submit tonight, I'm giving myself a timeline. It's a temporal experience. And kink is a temporal experience to experience a change of state for recreation, 
Now, some recreation looks more intense than others. Sometimes it's a teacup ride and sometimes it's a full haunted house. <laughs> and we still do it for fun, you know? And that there's an end. And that afterwards, we reabsorb all of our complex responsibilities in everyday life. Mm-hmm. The joy of topping or bottoming, dominating or submissive, submitting in the scene is in having a temporary vacation from the complex responsibilities and fucking adulting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what would you say to somebody who's listening right now, let's say, and they're just discovering like, whoa, I have been negatively impacted by some of these like toxic, icky, BS, BDSM ideas. What can that person do to set themselves free, to empower themselves? What are some steps that they can take to start actually doing that? Okay. So this hypothetical individual, of course, things will vary by person to person. But the thing that I would first want to say is it's not your fault that you had misinformation. Don't beat yourself up because you had misinformation, bad ideas that were given to you. And this is so common that it doesn't even get noticed and that you've noticed this is amazing. So one, be kind to yourself, it's not your fault. Two, that you have now noticed this is amazing and you don't need to be owned by this now. So I think that's the first thing is the self-compassion. Because without that, I could see somebody like, well, you know, I made shitty decisions, so I'm going to continue to make shitty decisions and see I kind of deserved it. I could see that kind of thinking. But instead, it's like, okay, this is a common thing. Oh, my God. All right. It wasn't my fault. I had bad ideas. That's so common out in the world. All right. Now I need to learn to check my squirrels and check my gut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I also wanted to ask you, we usually hear stories when doms turn out to be abusive, but what if it's a sub who's been behaving in a toxic way? How can a dom heal from that? And I'll give you an example that's actually in my in my personal life where I had someone who was sometimes in the submissive role with me and in his backstory, he had to confess. He was a part of the church and in order to be in the choir, he had to confess every week. So he's always having to confess that he masturbated because he was a teenage boy, right? A young teenage boy. So he's confessing. So he had a lot of kinks around that. And so we would play around that and he would confess to me. But sometimes he was confessing in his head. Like he wasn't saying it out loud all the time or it was veiled. And I found out later that he was actually confessing that he was cheating on me in his own head. And when I found out about that, that kind of messed me up. Like I wouldn't have proceeded with the scene and maybe that's some mistakes I made in the Dom role or what have you. But anyway, that's what happened. And it really messed me up in the sense that I wouldn't have proceeded with the scene if I had known that he was using the scene as a way to confess to me again in his own head that he was cheating on me. And I'm going on with the scene as if I'm at first punishing him, but then eventually forgiving him and like all this, all this stuff because he was a partner. Oh, that is 
layers of manipulation. Oh, my God. Right. So I'm just saying it's a good example in my mind of a submissive behaving in a toxic way to a dom. We always we don't think it can happen to the dom. Oh, my God. It can go in any direction because, again, dominance and submission are recreational activities and roles that we step into, like leading and following in a dance. In any case, all parties are human and humans can be assholes. And we take on this idea that we give some sort of value or like false virtue and false honor and virtue to topping and bottoming. We're playing games and fun games, hopefully, but yeah, any human can be an asshole and it doesn't matter which end of the whip they're on. And it's just as likely that the person engaging in uh, supposedly leading the game or choreographing the scene can just as much be exploited or have exploited, lied to, have bullshit. Um, so here's here's a common example. Okay. And God, I'm sorry that that happened. And thank you. It was a long time ago now. I'm fine. But it was icky. Just like with full on sex. If you find out certain things that your partner has done that would, in hindsight, make you think, I wouldn't have said yes to sex with them for a full year if I had known they were doing this. It all of a sudden, in retrospect, can feel like it wasn't a true yes, you know? And then you have to sort that out. Yeah. But, you know. Here's a common example about small, annoying, and yet building ways of people bottoming being assholes. Tell me if this has happened where you're at some kink event, and why is it always guys? A guy comes up and just like out of the blue is on their knees in front of you and calling you mistress. Oh, mistress, you're a goddess. May I serve you? Does this sound familiar? Mm, yeah, yes. I get letters All like that sometimes. All too familiar, sadly. <laughs> Maybe it's that the three of us are sitting around a cafe table, you know, having our tea and there's some guy. I mean, I've had the situation where I like look down and there's, I thought I bumped into something and turns out there's a guy licking my shoe. Oh, oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> but maybe, okay, so let's back it up and say somebody coming up and just saying, getting on their knees and saying, oh, mistress, you three goddesses, I will submit to you, oh, mistress. And too often I will see people, and I've done this too when I was younger, like we're supposed to take that as flattery. So, oh, thank you. Except I hate being called mistress. Mm. And I'm really uncomfortable that you just put yourself on your knees and just thrust me into this scene where I'm just having tea with my two other friends here. But I'm supposed to act like this is the world's biggest compliment. How is this different than some guy going, hey, babe, nice tits? Right. The same thing. Yeah, it's funny. They think they're submitting when really it's so it's such an act of entitlement on their part. Right. Like, oh, what's wrong with you? Can't you take a compliment? I'm complimenting you. Oh, but you are a goddess. You are a mistress. I should call you that. No, no, you shouldn't. How about you stand up and say, hi, my name is nice to meet you. Because that's the common etiquette of the land. And you made all sorts of assumptions. 
So if I accepted the O mistress and then like, okay, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. And now I'm supposed to feel flattered. I have now acquiesced to erasure of self. That action of this guy is manipulative and in a small building way, continually occurring way, not okay, abusive, jerky, assholery action. So if anyone out there is looking to say you see three amazing women and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, it'd be so hot to be able to be on my knees in front of them. Okay. You can have that thought. It's okay. Have that thought. Don't act upon it without having consent and knowing that this is what they want to do. Don't be an asshole. Mm-hmm. That's an example of a person wanting to bottom, engaging in toxic behavior. And I know so many women identified folks or people socialized as girls to accept that because it's a compliment, you know, it's a compliment. It's, I'm supposed to be called that, except I really, why am I uncomfortable? Why do I feel icky? Why do I? Yeah. 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 So what would you say to those folks? Because there's plenty of people that are like, no, 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 Midori, being submissive or being dominant is part of my identity. I am not playing. This is not a fantasy. I am living out my true self. Like to you and I, we might say, okay, yeah, there is that blurry line between fantasy and reality. If Even though we're like pretending it's real, we're still pretending. But other people would argue with you and take offense. Like that is my identity. So what would you say to that? To that, I would say, okay, and there must be other facets to your identity as well. So your part of your identity is submissive. Great. Part of my identity is artist, but I'm also friend. I'm also a middle-aged lady. I'm also this, that, and the other. I am not always artist. I am not always Asian woman. So, okay, submissive is part of your identity. Tell me more about yourself, that you are a far richer tapestry and that is part of who you are. Because let's say you have kids. Part of your identity is parent. Mm -hmm. And some of these identities cross over. Like, I'm curious if your art crosses over with your identity within BDSM. Sometimes but often in ways that's actually culturally critical. And so some of my performances are going to be about shaking up stereotypes as well. Oh, on the bit about play is not real, play is real. Play is so important. Play is such a vital part of us as mammals, us as primates. Without play, There's a whole lot of psychologists and sociologists studying the nature of play and how incredibly important it is to be vital and creative and innovative. Play is what makes Silicon Valley possible. It makes innovation and technology possible. Play is not unreal. Play is real. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I like this idea of playing around with identity and just really looking at your identity. I am curious if you could talk a little bit about that, like how you play around with breaking down stereotypes within your, your art. I am curious about that. I was wondering if you could speak more on that. I've got a performance called Kimono 2, What We Wear. And in it, there's a section where I'm wearing Western clothing and then eventually I dress myself on stage in a kimono and start putting layers and layers of paint of face on. Then I walk, at one point I walk into the audience and I've got a wooden mask on over layers of paints, layers of performance of selfhood as a woman on my face. And I take rope out of my kimono, I bind myself, and then the stagehands give buckets and brushes, big four-inch wide brushes to the audience with buckets of white paint. So I'm this Asian woman. I have lost myself under layers of face. You now see an Asian woman in bondage. I am now giving you the opportunity to whitewash me because why don't you just go ahead and do what you've been doing? Wow. And what happens? Oh my God, what happens? Well, I put the audience in a conundrum. Follow the artist's wishes and physically participate in whitewashing or choose to not physically participate in whitewashing and therefore not follow the artist's instructions. Dear Lord, that's a double bind. What the hell do they do? Oh, Lord, I don't know what I do. And sometimes people don't even realize what bind I put them in until they've like laid the brush on me. <gasps> wow. wow. That is like art and psychological predicament bondage and mindfuck all rolled up into one. Of course, this is you, Midori. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you feel about that, Sonny? I love it. It's hitting people where they are hit before they even realize it and where they need to be hit. These are conundrums that we need to think about that don't necessarily have easy answers that slap us upside the head. I feel like there should be a discussion group out of after that. Is there is there any discussion after that that thing or do you just kind of walk off into the sunset leaving them going, "What happened?" <laughs> so, once I'm painted over and at this point I can't see anything. I have to entirely trust the audience. So there's again this other conundrum that while I'm the one that's bound. I'm controlling the situation, even as I've let go of control. Oh. And it ends by, at one point, the stagehands bring out a big oriental rug. Yes, oriental rug. And this now statue-like entity falls backward and gets rolled up into the oriental rug and then taken away on a luggage cart. Wow. Are there people that see a show like that with you who don't know who you are in terms of your BDSM identity? Like, for instance, I had a date today and he was like, what? You're interviewing, you mean the Midori? And I'm like, yes, I am interviewing the Midori. He's like, oh, my God. 
<laughs> I'm wondering if there's some people that come to that show and they don't even realize who you are. And then they oh, find yeah. out later and they're just like, fuck me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One day I want to be able to do that at MoMA. Or <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah. People because they're like, oh, what is this strange thing that's happening? Wouldn't that be awesome if they would do something like that at MoMA? They should. That kind of stuff would be amazing. Well, yeah. And just the exploration about identity and all of that. Oh, my gosh. We could talk about that for a whole episode. Well, thank you for coming on today. This particular episode, we've done a lot of work about really making sure you explore kink from a place of joy and truth and really checking in with yourself, checking in with your partner so that you have an experience that is laying the groundwork for something that's a wonderful and, and sexy and hot, but also potentially healing. And so thank you so much for coming on. I hope you have a great time at the, the rest of your time at Sex Down South. And I just am grateful for all the work that you put out in the world. You're benefiting so many people. Can you tell everybody out there where they can find you and, and what you got going on? Great. Okay. So I'm going to make it easy for everyone. Planet Midori. So it's planetmidori.com. Social media is all Planet Midori. And I have this amazing Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Planet Midori. Lots of classes, videos, my art, all my vulnerable 2 a.m. shares. And I have live Zoom office hours every other week. Midori, thank you so much. You know I love the heck out of you. And I want to say for listeners, if you dug this episode, make sure you hit subscribe and you join us back again next time where we once again dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes, and until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchy Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell. <laughs>